Well, you can go ahead and grab your Bibles and open up to Romans chapter 5. And as you're getting yourself situated there, I want to just simply acknowledge again um, the uncertainty of the times that we're living in, even the arrangement that we are experiencing right now. Currently in the midst of a province-wide lockdown, you're likely watching this from your own home or listening to this online. I don't know about you, but in one sense, everything feels so shaky right now. It feels like we move from this place of, of comfort and stability into this place of the unknown, of instability. It's a reminder, this season is, that, that there's so much in our lives that are actually outside the bounds of our control. Things can change in an instant, and right now I think life for many of us feels a little bit like a giant game of Jenga. Everything is wobbling, and we feel like in one sense we're waiting for just one more piece to be pulled out and the whole thing to topple over. Everything feels so unstable and so uncertain. And I do think in some regards we all feel like this as we look around at the world and look around at what's happening. And what we need now more than anything is not everything to simply go back to normal. We need a certain hope. A certain hope that cannot be shaken regardless of what we see, regardless of what we experience, regardless of what we go through, regardless of how we feel. We need to know that though this whole world may topple and fall, we have a gospel certainty that will both carry us through and also outlive this present world. I need to be reminded of what is true, regardless of how I may feel. And this kind of gospel certainty strips away, if we allow it, it strips away all of our fear, all of our worry, all of our anxiety over the uncertainties before us and all around us, and replaces them instead with rejoicing, the proper response to understanding the certain hope that we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ is, as we've already prayed, an exultant kind of praise to God, a rejoicing. Paul, as he writes Romans chapter 5, he has this idea in mind. In fact, from verses 1 through 11, that's what we see as the dominant theme. Let's look at it together, beginning in verse 1. Here's what Paul writes. He says, "'Therefore, since we have been justified by faith,' We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one might dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. 
For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. The dominant refrain in these 11 verses is rejoice. It's mentioned three times. Paul pulls this thread through this passage because he wants us to see that the the certainty of the gospel should elicit this response in our hearts. There ought to be a rejoicing and exultant praise that flows from the heart of every believer who clings to this gospel certainty. Some translations uh, translate the word rejoice as boast. That's because the, the Greek word... Um, The root of that word is actually used in chapter 3, verse 27, where it's translated boast there. And there, a boasting in self is to be rejected, but rejoicing and boasting in God is what is done for the, the person who knows the Lord Jesus Christ. It's that natural response, that required response for those who truly grasp what God has done in the gospel. So you see, what Paul is doing now is he's shifting gears This is a new section in Romans with some new themes that come to the forefront. He's moving us out of chapters 1 through 4 from believing the gospel into now boasting in the gospel. He's moving us from receiving redemption to rejoicing in reconciliation. And he wants to anchor us in the certainty of the gospel, past, present, and future. With that, The call for our hearts is very simple. This morning as we look at this, there's going to be one dominant application point, and that is this, rejoice, rejoice. I want to give you three reasons to rejoice from this text that are all grounded in gospel certainty. First, notice this, rejoice, we have perfect peace. We have perfect peace. This is what the gospel has accomplished for every believer, every follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at what he says in verse 1. Therefore, moving from where we've been in the argument towards justification by faith, since we have been justified by faith, he says, here's the results, here's the blessing, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is such a, a potent and powerful theological reality. And I want you to notice here, the idea of rejoicing should be actually present even in this one passage. You see, what Paul has done here is he has bookended this passage with this idea of peace. We see that if you drop down to verse 11, where he says, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received, here's the key word, reconciliation. Paul uses this idea of peace with God and reconciliation synonymously. They essentially mean the same thing. We have been brought into this place now, this position before God where we are reconciled. There's now no more animosity, nothing that divides us. We have now experienced peace with God. In that last verse, he calls us to rejoice in this reconciliation. And so this concept of rejoicing is actually retroactive. It's here, it's present in verse 1 if we understand what Paul is getting at. And since we have been justified with faith, Paul again is building on the foundation that he has been painstakingly laying from chapters 1 through 4. 
It's interesting, those chapters focus on the past tense of the Christian life. But from now on, Paul is going to build on this foundation with the present and future tenses. So I want you to notice that we have peace with God and look at the present tense reality and the future reality. We have gained access into grace in which we now stand. This peace with God is critical to understand. Everything flows from this. Peace with God, in in this instance, is not a subjective statement, but an objective reality. In other words, it's not some kind of a subjective feeling that we have, this, you know, sense of inner calm maybe that we experience when we go out into nature. Or it's not the sense that I feel nearer to God because I'm inside a church building rather than sitting at home in my living room. It's not this inner sense or inner feeling. No, this is an objective reality. It is a change in status, a change in position before God. It it is this, that I am no longer an enemy of God. Objectively speaking, I'm not an enemy of God, but rather I am now a friend of God. I am no longer a stranger and alienated from God. I am now a child of God, a son of God. I'm no longer at war with God. And it's important to understand that this war has not been ended because of anything that I have done. It's not like I decided to befriend God, like I thought it was a good idea. It's not like I decided to become a decent person, maybe somebody with whom I believe God might want to be friends with, nothing like that. It's not like I offered God something he needed in exchange for this peace. No, the scriptures are clear that this peace has not in any way been accomplished or brought about by me or by you. To believe that would be to enjoy some sense of false peace, a perceived peace, but it would not be a real peace. If it's based on you, you have no peace with God. At the start of the Second World War, British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain believed that he had made peace with Adolf Hitler. He believed that he could give Hitler what he wanted, that he could avoid any conflict or escalation in the war with him, and and that he could somehow appease the, the wrath and fury of Hitler And in what's now a very chilling historical moment, you can see the footage of this. Neville Chamberlain, he returns from Munich after meeting with Hitler, and he steps off the plane and he smiles to the cameras and he waves to the crowds and he has a a massive grin on his face and he holds in his hand and up in the air a document, a paper with the signature of Hitler on it, and he confidently declares to the cameras and to the crowds, I have secured peace for our time. In a similar way, many people naively and foolishly believe they can accomplish peace with God. They live their lives with a perceived peace, wrongly believing that that they have appeased God's righteous wrath. They believe that they can do this by their own good works. They believe that they would somehow be off the hook because they are good enough. Maybe because of their own self-righteousness, maybe because of their own external religious practices. And you see, this is the whole idea and concept that Paul had spent four chapters utterly destroying and obliterating. 
His point has been very clear. We could not appease God and bring about perfect peace. All we could do apart from God's divine intervention is increase the hostility, is continue to store up and build up and pile up wrath upon wrath for the day of wrath. We could not establish perfect peace with God. But the good news of the gospel is that God could and God did. How did he do this? Paul is explicit in this verse here. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. At the cross, God appeased God. The peacemaking is all on his side. And it wasn't just that I was at war with God. This is so important to understand. It was that God was at war with me. And until his righteous anger was fully and completely, perfectly satisfied, I could never safely get near to him. I couldn't get anywhere close to him. But now, because of Jesus Christ, through Jesus Christ and what he accomplished, I can. Because of Jesus, we can be reconciled to God. In Christ, we are reconciled to God. Through Jesus, Paul goes on to say here in chapter 2, through him, we have also obtained access by faith into his grace in which we stand. For Paul... Grace and peace always go together. Even Paul's greeting in the opening verses of of Romans show this. Romans chapter 1 verse 7, Paul says, as he often does, grace and peace to you. You see, perfect peace means complete and total access to God. I love how Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 2, 18. He says, for through him we both, Jews and Gentiles, have access in one spirit to the Father. He goes on to say in chapter 3, verse 12, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. You see, in our sin, we couldn't get any further away from God, but in his grace, we can't get any closer. Positionally, we are as close as we can possibly get with God. We have gone through a door from the realm where sin enslaves, where we are under sin, And we have moved into the realm where grace rules. We are under grace. Before, I stood under God's wrath. But now, I stand in God's grace. I love that that imagery in which we stand. I love that, that the picture of our feet firmly placed, anchored, immovable, unshakable. This is where we find the certainty of the gospel. We have been received by God through Jesus Christ into his grace. It has all been his grace. By his grace, not only does he save us, but he draws near to us and draws us near to him. He gives us full access where we can boldly go before the throne of grace, where we can draw near to him and he draws near to us. We have been taken by the hand into the throne room. We have been brought into grace, undeserved blessing without limit or condition. Do you see why the response, the natural response that ought to elicit in our hearts is exultant rejoicing? God, how good are you? How good are you? You see, to stand in grace is to be a citizen of heaven. It is to be reminded, listen, that we stand on this earth on on shaky ground, but our feet are firmly planted in heaven itself. In the city that cannot be shaken and cannot be moved, it is there we find all that we need. 
In Christ, this is our concrete status, and it does not change based on circumstances or feelings. So let me call your heart to rejoice in the truth that we have perfect peace. This is our status, but I want you to notice next the assurance of this certainty, where this is grounded. Rejoice. Secondly, we have heavenly hope. I love this. I love this. Paul wants to hold out for us a future hope to encourage us in our present struggles. He says in the second half of verse 2, this grace into which we stand, and he says this, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. This is Paul's way of pointing us towards a future reality. You see, this rejoicing means, again, to boast in the sense of of jubilation, of exultant rejoicing, of praising. And what Paul says here is we have something as believers to shout about. You see, we used to fall short of the glory of God, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but now we boast in the glory of God. He has given us the sure and certain hope of sharing again in the glory of God. This is the glory that we long for and seek. It's the glory that we forfeited and by nature lack. But the glory we shall one day again share. There is again, as we've seen in recent weeks, a a new creation emphasis here. And the the writers of the New Testament are constantly fixing our gaze on what is to come. It's kind of like what Paul does in Romans 8, very similar to this passage. I'll put it on the screen and you can read it for yourself. Listen to what Paul says there. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. In hope, he says, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. You see, there is a, a heavenly glory that is yet to come that will be fully realized one day. And that glory is coming not only to us, but to all the creation that is groaning and longing to be fully recreated and restored through the work of Jesus Christ. And it is the certainty of this future hope that grounds us in the midst of our present struggles. Look at what he says. Verse three, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. What a fascinating statement. We rejoice in our sufferings. See, how how is that possible? You see, it's the the recognition that there is a divine rationale behind suffering. That is what can help us and cause our hearts to rejoice even experiencing the greatest suffering. Let me say it like this. Suffering is never for nothing. Suffering is never for nothing. And what Paul does here is so helpful for our souls. Paul fills in the gap between past grace, the grace that we received at our salvation and that we continue to stand in, and he fills in this gap between here and our future glory, the glory that awaits all of the sons of God, all of us who are in Christ Jesus now. 
What happens between these two is very often present suffering. Paul goes on to link together a chain, a logical chain, to show us the value of suffering and why and how we can rejoice in it. He tells us that what we know about suffering is essential, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame. First, we need to see this, that suffering is the one and only path to glory. It was so for Christ and it is so for every single Christian. Jesus used language that implied costliness and suffering. He called us to pick up our cross and follow him daily. We are told in the scriptures that all those who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. This suffering includes explicitly Christian suffering. Suffering for the cause and for the the sake of Jesus Christ. But it also includes The kind of sufferings that we experience in a broken and fallen world, all of the the trials and the afflictions, natural disasters, violent crimes, terrorism, sickness, the death of a loved one. But you see, we can and are expected, listen, let me say this again, this is so critical to understand, we can and we are expected to rejoice in our sufferings. Now, I, I just, just, just as a pastoral moment right here, I, I want to speak to your heart right now because many of you are not experiencing suffering, and so for many of you, you hear this and you, you tune out because you're like, this isn't really applicable to my life. I'm not undergoing any suffering. I'm not under at least any immense form of suffering, but let me tell you this, this is so incredibly important for you to grasp. You will suffer in your life. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And if you do not get these truths deep into your heart now, if you do not allow the Spirit of God to drive them into the very depths of your soul, I promise you this, when suffering comes, you will not be prepared to handle it. But if you can right now, if you can right now, maybe in this season of ease and comfort, allow the Spirit of God to prepare you to till the soil of your heart, to get ready for the suffering that is to come into your life, I promise you this, you will weather the storms, you will take the beatings, and you will rejoice in the midst of it. Rejoicing in the midst of suffering is only possible if we understand the tie between past grace and future glory. You see, when we become fixated on our present suffering, we cannot remain fixated on our heavenly hope. It's not possible. And Paul wants to fixate our gaze on our heavenly hope, and he does this first by showing what God is doing in us in the midst of suffering. He wants to remind us there's a divine plan here that your suffering is not for nothing. Suffering leads to glory in the end, a heavenly hope, but it leads to maturity in the meantime. And that's something worth rejoicing in, Paul says. Notice he says here in this first link in the chain that suffering produces endurance or perseverance. That is a a patient endurance. The quality of, of people who keep going under pressure. This is something that we only learn through suffering. No pain, no gain is actually a biblical principle. Every athlete knows that they will not get stronger unless they refuse to suffer. 
unless they refuse to put their body in uncomfortable positions under uncomfortable stress and demand. They need the strain and they need the pain in order to increase their strength and to increase their endurance. You see, suffering can be productive if we respond to it positively and not with anger or bitterness. Well, we should not look for suffering. Believe me, you're not going to need to look for it. It's going to come your way. We should certainly not run from suffering. Suffering produces endurance. And there is this sense, like an athlete, any, any, especially professional athlete, but any competitive athlete knows this, that the pain, it hurts so bad and you want it to stop, but you love it at the same time. It's this unbelievable paradox. You're like, man, this sucks, but man, I love it. Like, man, I want this to stop. Okay, but I got to keep going. Because you understand in the midst of the pain, if you can push through, it will build something that was not previously there. What is it building? Well, he tells us right here, endurance produces character. You see, that's what suffering is doing when you endure. And character means character that is tested. And it's found to be trustworthy and true. But you see, here's the reality, and here's, here's what really, really is hard to grasp for many people. Until we suffer, we're actually untested. We don't know who we are. We, we don't know the quality of our faith until that faith is put through the ringer. Only suffering can stamp us with the hallmark of authentic faith. There's so many so-called Christians who walk away from the faith when they encounter just the tiniest bit of suffering in their life. They've been peddled a gospel that says life is going to get easier, life is going to be a breeze. Coming to Jesus means everything is going to be gravy from here on out. And what they're revealing when they walk away in the midst of suffering, more than likely, is that they're not true Christians. You see, it's the suffering that reveals, that exposes, and that refines who we truly are in Christ. Character then produces, look at this, hope. Hope of what? He's coming back full circle here. We rejoice in hope, knowing that suffering actually is producing hope. Well, hope of what? The assurance, listen, here it is, the assurance and certainty that you are truly a follower of Christ. That I am his and he is mine. It's like the badge of authenticity of our faith. We're saying, look, 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 I suffered. I suffered for Jesus. I suffered well. I clung to Jesus. And what's revealed is this, that my hope was not in vain. My hope was real. Look what God has done in me. I love what the Puritan pastor and author, Thomas Brooks, wrote. He said this, assurance makes heavy afflictions light, long afflictions short, and bitter afflictions sweet. There's this cyclical effect. That hope end up, ends up be getting more hope. Suffering has that way, like I said, of exposing those things that you place your hope in. And exposing how hopeless, apart from Christ, if you're putting your hope in other things, suffering exposes that not only you're placing your hope in these other things, but it exposes the utter, utter emptiness and worthlessness and helplessness of those very things. When you go through suffering, when it's all taken away, when you've run to everything else but Christ, here's what happens. Whatever you run to ends up screaming to you, this won't work. 
And so you turn to another thing to grab hold of and to find hope and this won't work. And then you run to another place and you find out this won't work. Because only God will do. Only God will do. And guess what? The hope in God, that heavenly, eternal, unwavering hope, did you catch this in verse 5? It will not put us to shame. In the end, it will not put us to shame. It will be proven to be true and right. We put our full weight on it, and in the end, we find out that it and it alone can and will support us through all of life's trials, through all of life's suffering, right into eternity. But you see, when we suffer, all of us, all of us are tempted to believe things that are not true. We're tempted to believe things that are not true, and, and by way of application, maybe I can, I can give you a few examples of this. I'll put them on the screen as well. Here's what we're often tempted to believe about God in the midst of suffering. First, many of us are tempted to believe that God isn't good. God isn't good. This is the first reaction of many people uh, when they suffer, and when they look at suffering in the world, they say things like this, how can a good God allow suffering and evil to exist, right? You, you've heard it. But I think we're all inclined to believe that too. When we go through suffering, we're tempted to believe that God, God isn't really good. Let me give you another one. Some of us are inclined to believe that God won't care. God's gonna look at me and he's gonna see me and my suffering, but at the end of the day, God won't care. And maybe God won't care because God's not really good. And so I'm not going to call out to God. I'm not going to run to God. I'm not going to cling to God because God really, he really won't care about me, about what I'm going through. Some of us believe this, that God can't help. It's not that he, he, he won't or that he doesn't care. It's that God can't help. This is above God. This is so far beyond God. I've made such a mess of this or things are so bad or so tragic. I'm, I, my heartache is so deep. There's no way God can fix this. Let me give you one more. Some of us are inclined to believe that God doesn't love. If God, if God loved me, if God loved me, how could he let me? I'm his child. How could God let me go through this? How could God allow, how could God bring this trial into my life? How could God take this person away from me? How could God allow me to lose everything? God doesn't love. But you see, if we, buy, if we buy these lies, we will not endure to the end. We will not endure through suffering. And buying into these lies means that we have lost sight of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But you see, Paul is going to anchor us back in the gospel and ground our certainty. He's going to go even deeper into our certainty here. You see, he wants to remind us that God is good. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. He wants to remind us that God will care. Remember at the, the death of his, his dear friend Lazarus, that Jesus wept. Jesus wept over the pain that, that his friends were experiencing. He wept over the pain that sin has caused in this world, the havoc that it's wreaked in this world. He wept when he looked at the brokenness in front of him. And Paul wants to remind us that God can help us. He longs to help us. For the scriptures say, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. And most importantly, he wants to remind us that God does love. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life.
The scriptures give us so much reason to rejoice. And next week, I want to continue on in this passage to show us the lavish love of God. But for this morning, I think it's appropriate that we end here on this note of hope, reminded of the faithfulness of God and the care of God. It's so important as we look at Jesus, as we look at the cross, to be reminded of how faithful God is. These benefits are are yours, you see, if you have been reconciled to God. God has made peace with you. And God has given you a, a great and divine hope. We need to grab hold of the certainty of our faith. We need to let go of everything else we've been clinging to. We need to cling to Jesus instead. We need to be reminded that though all the world around us fall, we have been given what is most certain of all. We have perfect peace and we have a heavenly hope. Though all the world live in fear, it is clear from this passage that the major marker of a true believer is rejoicing, especially rejoicing in God himself. Paul will will end this passage by pointing us to the reality of this rejoicing in God. He would say in verse 11, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. I love how John Stott closes his commentary on this section. He says this, we should be the most positive people in the world for the new community of Jesus Christ is characterized not by self-centered triumphalism, but by a God-centered worship. You see, loved ones, we're reminded again and again that he is our great boast. We have nothing to rejoice in but him and him alone. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gift of the gospel. And Father, as we reflect upon our perfect peace and our heavenly hope, we're reminded, God, that we have every reason to rejoice, that God, in your kindness and in your faithfulness, you have grounded our hearts, not, God, in the uncertainty of our circumstances, not in the shakable nature of our world and our earthly lives, but you have planted our feet firmly in the hope of the gospel. You have made us citizens of heaven. You have ended the war that we have waged against you in our sin and rebellion. God, through faith in Jesus Christ, we have been justified. God, may it be our greatest desire to turn all of these truths, to turn them over in our hearts, in our minds, to reflect upon them, to meditate upon them, Lord, to truly find hope and joy in them, and then, God, to pour forth your praise, to celebrate your goodness and your grace to respond, Lord, to these truths, to what we know to be true about our gospel certainty with exultant praise. God, receive our praise now, we pray, as your children. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.